Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2014 AWP conference in Seattle. The recording features Rachel Kushner and Colin Tobin. You will now hear Elise Blackwell and Noreen Tomasi provide introductions. My name is Elise Blackwell, and I'm a member of the AWP board, which means it's my glamorous job to ask you to please turn off or at least silence your cell phones and to please refrain from flash photography during this afternoon's session. Um, I also want to thank all of our sponsors for this year's conference. They enable AWP to throw one heck of a literary party every year, and to thank you all for being here to be part of it. This afternoon, I want to particularly thank the Center for Fiction for making this afternoon's event possible and to introduce you to Noreen Tomasi of the Center for Fiction, who will introduce today's presenters. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, Thank you very much for coming. Uh, Before we begin, I will just say a few words about um, the Center for Fiction in New York City because you may not know it, and I think you should know it. We're the only nonprofit literary center in the United States solely devoted to the art of fiction, and uh, you can find us at centerforfiction.org. And I encourage you to go to that site. It's chock full of content, including essays, original fiction, interviews, audio and video, and a host of interesting things. So please do give us a visit on our website. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, We present over 100 writers a year at our home in New York City. Um, Everyone from Colson Whitehead to Colum Toybean to um, Elmore Leonard to Margaret Atwood, with lots and lots of emerging writers as well. We also give an annual first novel prize. called the Flaherty Dunnan First Novel Prize, which um, awards $10,000 to a debut novelist. And um, we do, we have writing workshops, and we do a lot of other things. So do visit our website, follow us on all of those things, you know, Tumblr and Center for Fiction with a four is our um, Twitter Um, address. I'm sure you'll find lots of interesting stuff on all of those things. I'm especially liking the Instagram and uh, Tumblr these days, so give us a look. We have been now for three years a literary partner to this amazing conference, and um, in 2012 we presented Marilyn Robinson, Hudgin, and Paul Harding. Last year we presented Don DeLillo and Dana Spiota, um, moderated by Scribner editor and publisher Nan Graham. Um, at this uh, um, Writers in Conversation event. And um, because I just can't stop twisting Nan Graham's um, arm at Scribner, we this year have Colum Tobin and Rachel Kushner. This session is entitled Image and Idea, and I want to tell you a little bit about what Colum said about Rachel's novel, The Flamethrowers. He said, this is an ambitious and serious American novel. Its scope is wide. The political and the personal are locked in a deep and fascinating embrace. In his latest novel, he too has a deep and fascinating embrace of a very interesting subject, the mother of Jesus, Mary. Um, And so this session will talk about how novelists reach and what the scope of the contemporary novel ought to be. Um, I'm going to very briefly 
read their bios. I think you know who they are, but uh, Cullum Tobin is the author of seven novels, including The Blackwater Lightship, The Master, um, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and Brooklyn, winner of the Costa Book Award, as well as two story collections, um, twice shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. He lives in Dublin and in New York. In 2012, his new collection of essays, New Ways to Kill Your Mother, Writers and Their Families, appeared, as did his edition for Penguin Classics of De Profundis and other writings by Oscar Wilde. Also in 2012, his novel, The Testament of Mary, which he'll read from today, was published and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2013. In April 2013, The Testament of Mary opened on Broadway with Fiona Shaw and was nominated for a Tony Award. The Broadway production will actually transfer to London in May 2014. Um, and very exciting news, his new novel, Nora Webster, will be published in the UK in October 2014. Rachel Kushner's second novel, The Flamethrowers, was a finalist for the National Book Award and a New York Times bestseller in Notable Book. Her debut novel, which I also love, Telex from Cuba, was a finalist for the 2008 National Book Award and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. It won the California Book Award and was a New York Times bestseller and notable book. Kushner is the only writer ever to be nominated for a National Book Award in fiction for both her first novel and her second novel. Her fiction and essays have appeared in New York Times, Paris Review, The Believer, Art Forum, Book Forum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Today, um, each author will read um, from their books. Then I will moderate a discussion about that interesting question of scope in the contemporary novel, which will, I hope, provide lots of insight into their recent work. We're going to begin um, with Rachel Kushner reading from Flamethrowers. Noreen for that introduction, and um, thanks to the Center for Fiction, which is a wonderful organization, and to AWP for having us. Um, I don't want to sound like a slavish idiot, but it's a, it's a huge honor to me to read with Colm Toybean, um, who's someone that I admire so much um, as a person, an artist, and a vast intellectual mind. Anyway. Uh, I'll read a short passage from The Flamethrowers. <clears throat> All you need to know is that um, the narrator of this book, she's a young woman, uh, has moved to New York City from Reno, Nevada in the mid-1970s, and she really knows no one in New York, uh, and has just arrived and is kind of at loose ends when she encounters these two people in a bar, and she's so lonely that um, she decides to speak to them. This is my wife, the nasal man in elegant clothes said as I sat down next to them at the bar. Nadine. He said it again, Nadine, and looked searchingly at her. She ignored him as if she were used to this audible pondering of her Nadine-ness in bars for the benefit of strangers. We were at a wedding, Nadine said, turning to me. 
They asked us to leave. They asked Thurman to leave, I mean. But I don't like weddings anyway. They make my face hurt. <laughs> that was how she spoke. Why did they want you to leave, I asked. But I could sense why. Something about their presence in an empty bar, many levels below what the man's clothes might suggest. Because Thurman lay down in the grass, Nadine said, he started taking pictures of the sky, just blue sky, instead of the bride and groom. He'd had a few too. I did not have a few too. I was looking for something decent to photograph, something worth keeping for posterity. Oh, posterity, Nadine said. Sure, great, if you can afford it. You could have just told Lester you didn't want to be the picture taker. There was a camera sitting in front of him on the bar, an expensive looking Leica. You're a photographer, I asked him. Nope, he smiled, revealing a tar stain between his teeth. But the camera, I couldn't think of how to say it. You have a camera, but you aren't a photographer. I sensed he would only keep meandering away, like something you're trying to catch that continually evades your grasp. Better to say yes, Thurman said, and then disappoint people. I mean, really, let them down. Lord knows you're good at that, Nadine said. I'm talking about building a reputation. So am I, she said. All I want, Thurman said, is for people to stop asking me to come to their weddings and funerals. I don't mind funerals, Nadine said, except when they buried my daddy in a purple casket. That was awful, she turned to me. Thurman knew my daddy. Daddy was a mentor to him, a teacher. A mentor, I repeated, hoping this might lead somewhere to some explanation of who she and Thurman were, because they were someone or something. I was sure of it. Well, my daddy was a, I guess you could say pimp. Pimp is acceptable. I mean, now that he's dead, and you know what? People don't say procure anymore. <laughs> who knew what was true? And my mother was a whore, so they got along perfect. Probably nothing was true, but I liked the challenge of trying to talk to them. I had spoken to so few people since arriving that it felt logical to interact in this manner. It was direct and also evasive, each in a way that made sense to me. May he rest in peace, Thurman said, a gentleman. I wanted to ask him for your hand in marriage. You were 14 and god damn, I wanted to just marry the pants off you. He grinned and showed the ugly stain on his teeth. But then there was no point. It wasn't marrying to get in your pants since you were already allowing it. Not with me. That creep you did marry later on. Nadine frowned. Do you want a purple casket, Thurman? Because Blossom might have one all picked out for you with a copper millennial vault to preserve your... He'd got up walked to the end of the bar and aimed his camera at a sign above the register. Sorry, no credit.
three or four drinks in, still, they hadn't asked me anything. But what interesting thing did I have to tell? I was content to listen to their stream of half reports on people I'd never heard of, stories I could not follow, one about a baby named Koch. This lady was nursing him, Nadine said, and then another lady, and you begin to think, wait a minute, whose baby is Koch? I don't know who was his mother and who was a wet nurse. I'll make you a wet nurse, Thurman said as he grabbed Nadine and put his hand between her legs. She twisted away and then she was prattling about a McDonald's she once went to in Mexico. I had been in a McDonald's commercial when I was in high school and I thought, as Nadine spoke, that it might be a story I could share with them. McDonald's is supposed to be the same everywhere, right? Well, not in Mexico. They Mexicanize it. Hamburguesa con chile, no fries, frijoles. I was with my ex. We were starving, and I was ready to eat beans. We're at the counter and find out we have no money. He'd lost his wallet. She went on about this ex, the revolution he had been fomenting that never took place and had led to their harsh and vagrant life in the mountains of northern Mexico, the hole in his pocket that his wallet wiggled through, leading to his inability to provide for her the most fundamental thing, a McDonald's hamburger. <laughs> that was how she put it, that he couldn't provide even a hamburger. After which she left him and went to Hollywood, where the nightmare really began, a series of episodes and hard luck that involved rape, prostitution, and an addiction to Freon, the gas from the cooling element in refrigerators. What you get, Thurman said, when she'd finally finished, for marrying that creep. I don't want to talk about him and stop calling him that, would you? You brought him up, only to tell her about the Mexican McDonald's. I was in a McDonald's commercial, I said. Oh, you're an actress. No, I just did the one thing. I was 16, and it was just something an ad our coach answered. And, Thurman, she's an actress. Well, I, we did act, I guess, but that's not, they needed a girl who could ski, and so I, you're an actress and a skier? I never meet anyone who skis. Do you ski, I asked, only vaguely hopeful. Do I ski? No, honey. The commercial's director and crew had come to Mount Rose, where we trained. They talked to our coach and ended up choosing me and a racer named Lisa, a quiet girl no one really knew. There was a long day of takes and retakes. They wanted two girls with hair flying, snow bunnies on a brisk, sunny afternoon. A week later, they flew us both to Los Angeles, to a strange McDonald's in the city of industry, where they only film commercials. It looked like a regular McDonald's, with cashiers in paper hats, a menu board, the plastic bench tables, where Lisa and I sat across from each other and smiled as if we were friends, although we weren't, each of us holding a hamburger in our fingers with hot lights on us, in this fake restaurant that looked real, except they didn't serve customers. I tried to explain this to Nadine, but she kept interrupting me. 
When we finished shooting the ad, I flew home to Reno. Lisa was supposed to be on the flight, but she wasn't. She was 18, an adult, and I didn't wonder. She had apparently gone to a bar near the fake McDonald's in the city of industry. No one ever heard from her again. Freaky, Nadine said. There's no telling. Once, I met the serial killer Ted Bundy. Can you believe it? He was real handsome, real smooth. I was on a beach, and here comes this hunky college guy. I was this close to ending up like that gal in the commercial with you. It hadn't occurred to me that Lisa had been murdered. I assumed she'd been impatient to meet her future and had just fled into it and never bothered to let anyone know where she was. I miss Los Angeles, Nadine said, don't you? I was only there one night, I said, in the city of industry, which I don't think is actually Los Angeles. And so the way the palm trees shake around, she went on, and it sounds like rain, but everything is sun reflecting on metal. I once went to a house in the Hollywood Hills that was a glass dome on a pole, its elevator shaft. Belonged to a pervert bachelor, and he had peepholes everywhere. He was watching me in the toilet. Same guy drugged me without asking first. Angel dust. I was on roller skates, which presented a whole extra challenge. Thurman was laughing. I understood she was his airy nonsense maker, a bubble machine, and occasionally he would be in the mood for that. How the hell did you manage drugged on skates, he asked her. Like I said, there was an elevator. Anyhow, there's some use in being doped against your will. Before it happened, I didn't have my natural defenses. Some people don't get the whole boundaries thing until they've had their mind raped by another person. It helped me to establish some kind of minimum standard. She turned to me. Did you see Clute? Yeah, I said I did. I, I liked it, she said. He didn't. She gestured at Thurman. She wasn't curious what I thought of Clute. But that very film had been on my mind. This portrait of a woman who was alone and isolated in the dense and crowded city. In my empty apartment, I'd been thinking of the scenes where her phone rings. She answers, and no one is there. Thanks. Um, thank you very much, Noreen, for having us here. And it's an um, honour, it's a sort of dream to be reading with Rachel Kushner. Uh, we haven't done this before. It's uh, great. Um, this, is, um, this is Mary, and, and she's going to Cana. Um, one of the great things about being a novelist is you can just move things around if you decide that really it's too much trouble to have. Lazarus and all his family in some other place other than Cana. He just moved them to Cana. <laughs> I suppose that's how they felt the evangel. I mean, when they were writing the Gospels, they must have done a bit of that themselves. <laughs> uh, but they were divinely inspired. I, I was just working on my own. <laughs> Close to the house 
of my cousin Miriam was the house of Lazarus. I, I had known him since he was a baby. Of all of the children that any of us had, he was from the day he appeared in the world the most beautiful. He seemed to smile before he did anything else. When we visited Ramira, his mother, she would put her fingers to her lips and take us across the room to where his cot lay. And when he, we looked in, he seemed to be already smiling. It made Ramira at times almost embarrassed because when we came to visit, we would discover that we were not alone in feeling that we had come to visit the boy as he learned to walk and talk as much as we had come to see his parents or his sisters. Instantly, as soon as other children saw him, they wanted him in their game. Whatever they did once he was there became peaceful and harmonious. I now know that he was alone among us and possessing something strange. He had not been visited by darkness or by fear, by what comes into our spirits in the deepest part of the night or the end of the Sabbath and lurks there. There were years when I did not see him, the years when the family moved to Bethany before they returned to live in Cana, but I always heard the news and it always included something about him. How he was growing up golden and graceful, serious and kind, and how worried they were because they knew they would not be able to keep him among the olive grove and the fruit trees, that something would happen to him, that a great city would call to him, that the charm he exuded and his beauty, grown manly now, would need another realm in which to flourish. But no one realized that it would be the realm of death he was destined for, that all the grace and beauty, all of his aura of specialness, like a gift from the gods to his parents and his sisters, that all of it was a grim joke, like being teased by a smell of delicious food or the possibility of plenty, when it was really only something passing by, destined for elsewhere. I know that he moaned in pain for a day or two, and then he was better, and then the pains came again, and they came in his head, and they often lasted through the night, and that he cried out, he cried out that he would promise to be good. But there was nothing to be done. There was poison growing in his head. He began to weaken, and he could not bear light, even a chink of light. If the door opened as someone came into the room, it would be enough for him. He would cry out. I do not know for how long this went on. I know that they cared for him, and I know, too, that it was as though a golden harvest had been mowed down by a night's dark wind or a pestilence had come into the trees and shrunk the fruit. And it was unlucky even to mention his name or ask for news of him. So I did not ask for news of him, but I often thought of him, especially as I prepared to come to Cana. I wondered if I should visit him or his sisters. As I set out, I did not know that he had already died. I know because Marcus told me that Mary and Martha, the two sisters of the dead boy, began to follow my son once they'd heard the news of the lame walking and the blind seeing. And I understand that they would have done anything in those last silent days. They watched helplessly as their brother grew easily towards death, in the same way as a source for a river hidden under the earth begins flowing and carries water across a plain to the sea. They would have done anything to divert the stream, make it meander on the plain and dry up under the weight of the sun. They would have done anything to keep their brother alive. They sent word to my son and they asked him to come, but he did not. It was something I learned when I saw him myself, that if the time was not right, he would not be disturbed by a merely human voice or the pleadings of anyone he knew. Thus he paid no attention to what he heard from Martha and Mary, and they stayed with their brother so they would be with him when he took his last breath, when he was fully part of the waves of the sea, an invisible aspect of their rhythm, 
And during those days then, as river water slowly took on the taste of salt, they buried him. And he lay fresh in the earth. Many people who had loved Lazarus and who had known his sisters came to the house to comfort them. There was talk and lamentation. And then um, he's, raised, he's raised from the dead. Slowly, the figure dirtied with clay and covered in grave clothes wound around him began with great uncertainty to move in the place they had made for him. It was as though the earth beneath him was pushing him and then letting him be still in his great forgetfulness and nudging him again like some strange new creature jerking and wriggling towards life. He was bound with his sheets and his face was covered with a napkin and now he turned as a child in the freshness of the womb who turns knowing that his time there is up and he must rest at his way into the world. Loose him and let him go, my son said. And two men came, two neighbours, and they stood in the grave as those around watched in hushed amazement and fright as they lifted Lazarus and then unbound him. He stood up with merely a cloth around his waist. He'd been unchanged by death. Once his eyes opened, he stared at the sun with a deep unearthly puzzlement and then at the sky around the sun. He seemed not to see the crowd. Some sounds came from him, not, not words exactly, something closer to whispered cries or whimpers. And then the crowd stood back as Lazarus moved through them, past them, looking at no one, being led by his sisters back to their house, the world around remaining still and silent. And my son, too, I am told, still and silent, as Lazarus began to weep. At first they noticed just the tears, but then his crying came in howls as his two sisters led him gently towards the house, followed all the way by the silent crowd as the howling grew louder and more fierce. By the time they reached their door, he could barely walk. They disappeared inside and closed the shutters from the burning sun and did not appear again that day, despite the waiting crowd who lingered hour after hour, even as night fell, and some indeed through the night itself and even as the morning came. And then a few days later, he comes to the house where Mary is staying. Their brother stood in the doorway and then moved quietly into the room. When he sighed, all of us moved towards him and it was then, just then, that the opportunity came. And it was the only one I had and I think it may have been the only opportunity anyone had to ask him. It was the semi-darkness of the room the stillness of the air and the fact that all of us, us four women, would know to keep silent about what we should not speak of. There were a few seconds in which any one of us could have asked him about the cave full of souls where he had been. Was it a place of massive, obliterating darkness? Or was there light of wakefulness or of dreams or of deep sleep? Were there voices? Was there pure stillness? Or some other sound like the dripping of water or sighs or echoes. Did, did he know anyone? Did he meet his mother, whom we had all loved? Did he remember us as he wandered in the place where he had been? Was there blood or, or pain? Was it a landscape of dull, washed colours or a red vastness with cliffs or forests or deserts or encroaching mist? Was anyone afraid? Did he wish to return there? Lazarus stood in the darkened room inside again, and something was broken. 
great chance had escaped us, maybe never to return. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, I had an immediate question already, but I'm not going to ask it because instead I have to say I'm so struck um, by the sound of your work, both of you, so beautiful. And I know that uh, Last Testament of Mary was, a, uh, The Testament of Mary was also a play, but Rachel, I was so struck by your sense of voice and of of dialogue and those characters speaking so beautifully. Can you talk to me just a little bit about the sound of language and how much it, um, uh, how much of a factor it is when you sit down alone to write? Start. Start yeah. Sure. Um, <clears throat> gee, it's a tough question to answer because um, it's a huge factor, but some of it is filtering in. I think on a semi-unconscious level, there's a way in which I think probably all writers uh, are speaking to themselves uh, while being silent, um, because silence, uh, well, at least for me, is the first necessary, absolute precursor to writing. And um, I'm, I will speak on occasion, as I am right now, but it's not my favorite thing to do. And um, when I go to write, I don't want to have committed any speech act that day uh, whatsoever. And um, I think the quieter I am, the more I can hear what I'm trying to do in my writing. And there's a way in which I am reading the words out loud in some part of my mind as I'm writing them, especially with dialogue, which is something I've grown to love uh, building and making. And I, I didn't always know that I would be that kind of writer, but I do, I do love it. I love to listen to other people and the way they speak. And I never use what they say, what I overhear, but it teaches me something about the way people could speak in my fiction when I go to invent them uh, and what they express. I get to a point when I'm writing where I do read things out loud. I like to read work in progress. I didn't do today, but I'm not to that point yet for the new book. Um, and that forces me to read things out loud and really listen to them and try to be uh, objective. So, but that's a kind of second level of hearing, um, a more literal version of it. Um, in, um, I think it's in, in the year 2000, I was teaching for the first time in the new school in New York. And I was told that there was quite a lot of competition among professors over how many students you would get. And if you got no students or very few, your course would be canceled. And, I thought this would be very worrying. I might have to go home. And um, so I thought, well, I've got to, have to do something urgent. So I, so I decided to call the course Relentlessness. And I thought, <laughs> it being the new school, that I might get a certain sort of student, you know? And I did. They all came, you know? And then I thought, well, I'd better put something together for this course, you know, that was relentless. And um, so, I mean, we worked on the Greek texts, on Medea, on, on Electra, on Antigone. And then on various modern or contemporary versions of that, including the poems of Sylvia Plath, say, or novels by Joan Didion um, or Nadine Gordimer. And so that when I came to this, um, certainly I, I don't th I think I could have done it without. Um, I, I owned a record 
of Sylvia Plath reading. I mean, an, L, an LP vinyl. This is before modern, you know, the 20th century. And um, <laughs> I know I owned it um, in 1975. And I used to play it a lot. And um, I knew a whole lot of it off by heart. Darling, all night I have been flickering off on, off on. The sheets grow heavy as a lecher's kiss. Three days, three nights, lemon water, chicken water, water make me wretch. And that used to give, I used to give, give me pleasure, really. And, um, <laughs> and um, certainly when I came across the way in which the American poet Louise Glick had, um, had grafted, had taken on certain mythological um, uh, sort of paradigms and, and had, had, had adapted her own voice to them, um, I also got a lot from that, so that I, I, I was thinking in a way um, with that voice, and I was imagining that voice, and, and I wasn't, I'm not sure hearing is the word, because you are, as, you, as Rachel says, you're working in silence, you're hearing nothing, but, but, but you're attempting to find a voice and hold and wield a voice, and, um, or a tongue, and um, that tongue for me has a lot of literary resonance. I mean, I, I, you know, I didn't make it up myself. I just worked with something I had already found. Both of your books um, have um, incredible reach and, and scope, and you take on daunting subjects. And I want to go back to Flamethrowers, because um, that book for me um, just overturn my expectations of it at every turn. Um, you move from what was a wildly interesting time in New York City, the late 70s, 1977, in that kind of radical art scene, um, to um, a time of great political um, unrest in Italy. You move um, back and forth in so many ways, um, and um, you do it through a female protagonist, um, moving between two worlds um, at a time when um, those worlds were very male-dominated and very macho. And so that was an interesting component of the novel. And I wonder what, why you decided on that, and did it have anything to do with um, the background of um, some of those artists who, know, though not as well known as as their male counterparts were making a kind of subversive art at that time. Uh, female artists, you mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, when I go to write, it never really has that kind of very nice, precise logic that uh, <clears throat> you just elucidated. Um, I was interested in the New York art world, certainly uh, in the 1970s. I mean, it's a time when um, it was no longer at all cool or even viable to make paintings and sculptures to a degree. Um, and people were making work that was so ephemeral and about the gesture, um, performance, dance. And a lot of what's left of those works is just photo documentation. So you can see what Soho looked like and get an idea of who people were. And I spent a lot of time around artists. And the 70s wasn't that long ago. So a lot of those people are on the scene. and. Um, you can talk to them, um, and I did, and just in a natural way, not because I wanted to write this book. Uh, it was the other way around. Um, and in terms of, 
it never occurred to me to have the narrator be any other than a young woman. I don't know why. Um, I wanted a narrator who would be very impressionable uh, because I thought that that would make her more sensitive to what was going on around her. Um, when people are overly concerned, I think, with their station vis-a-vis -vis the other people in the room, like as, especially in the art world, has a kind of tense hierarchy to it. People get very interested in themselves, and they want to talk about themselves and tell you about their show. And not, I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not denigrating it or anything, but I, I was more interested in a narrator who didn't want to tell you all about herself. She wanted to share what she encountered. Um, and that, that was just structurally for me uh, a more interesting prospect for the book. There were a lot of very interesting women artists at that time, and I maybe was thinking of some of them. Um, there's a really beautiful uh, lyric film by Chantelle Ackerman called News From Home, where she just reads letters that her mother has sent her. Uh, and the it's just a voiceover with um, this kind of like languid camera panning through the streets of Lower Manhattan, and it's sort of empty. And I mean, I was already well into the book. Uh, I'm always trying to come up with, this is why. But really, you know, it just happened as it happened. But when I have an idea, and then it resonates with what I find in the world, and I like what I find, like that Chantel Ackerman movie. I'd never seen that until maybe five years ago. And then it spurs me to keep going. And um, it just seemed like the young woman was a good conduit for the book. The character of Rena, she, um, she's not what you expect, though, and she's not what any of the people around her expect in a way. She doesn't conform to their expectations of her, it seems, in New York or in Italy. And I thought, I thought that's what's so kind of, that's what's so fascinating about the Testament of Mary as well. Um, Mary, who is the, you know, in the icono iconography of Catholicism is the kind, um, 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 petitioner to her son who, if you um, pray to Mary, she will secretly slide him a note and, <laughs> and you'll get what you want. And, and in, the, in um, your novel, she's, she's very unlike that. Um, uh, she's nothing like the Mary of Catholicism, really. Can you talk about that decision? Well, I suppose the, the, the Mary of Catholicism comes in a number of guises. Um, uh, I mean, for me, there was an important moment when, um, I mean, there is a wonderful, glorious painting in the Frari in Venice of Titian's Assumption. And Titian obviously loved painting red robes, and he loved angels, and he loved the sky, and he had a great day out, you know, and it's enormous, and it's over the altar in the Frari, and you can go and look at it. But for every Titian, there's always a Tintoretto. And <laughs> Tintoretto's always wondering if there's any way I could undermine Titian this week. And if you go up the road from there, and of course it's not in a church, because I don't think a church would tolerate it, is Tintoretto's crucifixion, which is filled with chaos and untidiness. Yes, it has a cross in the middle, but all around people are doing other things that day. They're busy that day. They didn't know they were at a, that crucifixion. And they're hungry, or they're talking, or they've got horses or something. And, and so there was that, that idea um, that, um, what it might have been like then. I mean, I don't just mean, you know, trying to, trying to create the, the full atmosphere, but nonetheless, just trying to forget the entire imagery, the iconography of Mary as the 
you know, as the weeping mother or as the um, mild mother, but actually what she might have been like as a very old woman who was traumatized with what we know now about trauma. You know, in other words, there's no point in, in pretending that this, you know, this is a contemporary novel and you're grafting on things that we know. What might it have been like if she just simply hadn't recovered from the experience that it was locked in her and one day it just came out in a torrent of speech? What would that sound like if you did it? So I suppose that was the idea. So that sound was terribly important to you then. Um, uh, thinking of her as speaking. Well, the sense that she wouldn't have much time, so that there would have to be a tone in the book. Um, and I suppose the issue, I suppose, is um, I, I, it's best rehearsed really in uh, um, the Stendhal's Charter House of Parma, where poor Fabrice is thinking about love, and he really is in love. And, but he's, he might have been at the Battle of Waterloo, but he's not sure. It was only afterwards, of course, it was called the Battle of Waterloo. And he's going along, and he, later he thinks, you know, I think I was at the Battle of Waterloo, <laughs> but I was thinking about love. And I think every novelist has that choice sometimes. Are you at the Battle of Waterloo, or are you thinking about love? And, you know, there's a novel by Jim Crace called Quarantine about Jesus' 40 days in the desert which is filled with beautiful sentences and the haze of the desert, just appears now and then in the distance. And it's a very beautiful book. It's a perfect novel in a certain way. But I, what I wanted to do was move into the center of the story. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what you're talking about there is that idea of, are you going to move into the private realm? And if so, to, to, to what extent are, are you sure that you want to stay there? when your characters are operating in a space which is also public? And, and, and how are you going to navigate that? Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that, that really operates both in Telex and Cuba and in the flamethrowers, that, that idea of you know, finding a public moment and finding characters who are involved in that public moment and then doing your work in the funny spaces in between right. the private and the public. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, it's a sort of, if I understand correctly, it's a, it's a kind of classic um, way of handling history in the novel, is that um, a character either misses or makes his appointment with a central event. And if they miss the appointment, you can make just as much of it in your fiction as if they make the appointment, meaning, you know, like with Sentimental Education with Flaubert, the revolution of 1848 happens, but he's, you know, with a hooker in a hotel. Um, and the reader it, it needs to understand what's n not being portrayed in the book. And it's just off stage, and it's very craftily uh, negotiated. But then in another sense, you know, maybe in my own fiction, I send in the flamethrowers the narrator. She makes the appointment but um, she's not the character who was cast for that role. She doesn't, can't interpret or really understand what's going on around her when she ends up in Rome uh, during a demonstration that kind of very quickly converts into a melee. Um, so I don't know if that's what you meant to yeah. some degree, right. So do both of you, looking at your whole body of work, do you think of yourselves as writing historical fiction? Henry James is very good on the subject. A friend of his wrote an historical novel, 
and sent it to him. And he sent it back immediately. He wouldn't read it. He said, there's a fatal cheapness. <laughs> That's this phrase. There's a fatal cheapness about an historical novel. And that he, um, he didn't approve of them. And he thought a novel should be set um, in, in the foreseeable future or in the very near future. But um, I, I, I think I'm uneasy about the idea of the historical novel you know, filled with detail, that it's so filled with, with period detail, period costume, that it means nothing other than the author has been in the library for too long. <laughs> that, 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 that in other words, if, if it doesn't have a contemporary resonance, then I think you're lost. Yes. And there's no point in pretending with, with the book you're working on, that, that they're not pressing, the pressing um, urges of now are not involved with the book. And I think if it's missing that tension between now, um, mm -hmm. uh, then I think it's missing a great deal. So I'd be very uneasy about being, being called or being or writing an historic, you know, historical, historical fiction. Uh, I agree completely. Um, yeah, I, I mean, when I brought up history, I was just thinking history happens in all novels. I mean, even contemporary ones, they have a past. There's some consciousness uh, of a before. But um, that phrase, historical novel, I try to distance myself from it. Um, and I, I mean, I guess for the reasons that Column decided, but I don't, um, I don't think of what I'm doing as historic. Even I'm writing a contemporary novel now, but my first novel, granted, it takes place uh, in the mid-1950s, in the years leading up to the Cuban Revolution, and the new one takes place in the 70s, but um, I don't write in order to recreate uh, a time that's dead and past. And my interest in being a writer and writing novels is not about resurrecting something else. Um, it's a mode of being in the world for me. But the mode of being in the world has to have a subject, something to gnaw on. So with this book, I chose the 70s, but all kinds of things were happening around me in the world that are reflected and kind of transmuted into the pages of the book. And for me, the occasion to write has to be a kind of um, intermeshing of those two things, what I've chosen to write about and what I know and understand about life as I'm living it in that moment. Um, I am interested in history in, in the sense of having some conception of why things are happening or wh how it is that people are shaped or their by their environment. Um, but I think that way of looking at things can be present in a contemporary novel just as well as it can be uh, in a novel that takes place in the past, but I wouldn't want to call it historic. Um, and just to echo off something Colm said, I was thinking about um, there's a line in one of Flaubert's letters, I can't remember who he wrote it to, maybe Louise Collette, where he says about <clears throat> uh, Salambeau, uh, you have no idea how depressed a person has to be to recreate Carthage. Um, and that, that book is considered to be, you know, the bad, er, historical novel because it's a dead relic. It just, it's just this glittering object that had no relationship to 19th century bourgeois society, which, as we all know, most of his other work has a significant relationship to. So, um, if you're not writing historical fiction, and, and I wouldn't say either of you are, um, particularly doing that. Um, it seems that what you're both doing are writing a kind of 
you know, and categories aren't really helpful, maybe, but a kind of novel that is meant to um, have the reader challenge, reader think about who they are now and, and to, to kind of interrogate the world now and being alive now. Even Testament of Mary does that so much for the reader. Um, so do you think of that when you're writing? Do you think of a, your writing as philosophical or, or of uh, having an immediacy for the reader in, in confronting what it means to be alive now? Well, I suppose, um, I mean, in, in Ireland, I think the, the image of the family is so exalted that if you set a novel merely, I'm, I use the word merely ironically, in a house with a family, you are in Troy in some way or other. You, you can actually do a great deal. And my colleague, John McGarhern, would constantly, I mean, uh, there, there, was a, there was a conference in Paris and they were all shouting at us, the French, over, why are you all not writing novels? This was during, the, I mean, really bad years of the Northern Ireland Troubles, you know, of, of, the, of, the, uh, of the killings and the bombings and the mayhem. And why are you not all writing about that? And John McGarhern very, very seriously and solemnly took on, you know, said, the only job a novelist has is to look after your sentences. Now, if you look after your sentences, everything else will come into place. But he himself had merely, uh, and again, I'm using merely ironically, um, over six novels, really, set all the novels in a single house, often the same house, often with the same people in the house. And he had created a literature, I, I mean, a body of work, which had mattered enormously nationally in Ireland, which had changed the country in a certain way by, by depicting the father, the expatriate, as the bully in, in a domestic space, bullying his daughters. He had somehow or other freed the country by the images he made, so that the more private and the more intense he became, the more oddly national and public he became. So that it's very difficult to be, you know, to say there's only one way you can actually matter. I mean, because, because the novel is written silently and read silently, that, that it can have an enormous impact and power, which, which, is, which is almost its resonance, and that, it, and that it doesn't really matter what its content is so, some of the time, as long as there's a level of deliberation, feeling, and seriousness behind it in some way or other. So it's a, it's a curious business when you're working sometimes that, that um, if you think the next image I'm going to produce, and, and I just, just I want to just use, since I'm here, just ask you something. Rachel, in Telex from Cuba, there's an image of the cane workers who are cutting the sugar, who are, some of them are being forced to wear an iron mask yeah. so that they won't eat the sugar, they won't eat the cane. And it's one of those images where you think, I mean, it's, it's a tiny moment, it's a single sentence, I think, where you just think, ah. in other words, the idea that, that they were forced to put this over their face. What's that from, or where did that come from, or could you just tell me about it? Because I, when I came to it, <laughs> I was so shocked by it. And so in other words, what, what I'm saying is that sometimes just find one image, and you have both you know, something that will really hit yeah. the reader's nervous system mm -hmm. in a way which, which we, you will not be able to predict the, co the consequences of. Right. You know, it's, I mean, it's hard to cre recreate the moment when I 
decided to employ or deploy that detail, um, I have to sort of guess. But um, Cuba had uh, an immense slave economy. You know, there's a time in the world where Havana was the largest slave market, and slavery ended there very late, way, way after the Civil War. Um, and even when slavery ended, um, there were still slaves. You just couldn't buy and sell them any longer. Um, I think I must have seen a picture or read a very minor detail or I saw one somewhere at a museum in Cuba. I don't even remember. But um, I think a moment like that as a reader, I just sometimes want to know what I'm dealing with. You know, like I've been reading a lot of Zora Neale Hurston recently, and um, in their eyes were watching God in the very beginning. She lets you know that the grandmother was born a slave, but then it very quickly passes and the grandmother dies and she goes on uh, to live this life of relative independence. You don't think about it anymore, but it, to me, it's an essential experience personally of reading the book is to understand that moment and I wanna think about it after I've read it. So I don't know, I mean, I guess the image, yeah, was evocative me as well. I mean, it's always upsetting to think about things like that. And we had 12 Years a Slave by Steve McQueen last year, which I'm sure most of you saw. And the movie still resonates, you know, and it's not just shock value either. It has something to do with who we are and how we exist, that we have to incorporate uh, that and it can't be sublimated. I have to leave a little time for questions from the audience. But before we do so, I thought it might be nice to and with a little mutual praise. And I wonder if um, each of you could talk a bit about um, anything in the other's work that attracts you or anything you've particularly loved. Rachel raised her hand, Colum, so she has to well, go first. Colum is a pro, and so he's just like naturally, selflessly turning, weaving my work <laughs> into his comments. And I kept trying to find a way to do that. So many. Uh, things come up for me. I saw The Testament of Mary performed by Fiona Shaw, who many people think is the greatest living theater actress. And uh, it was, I had read the book uh, right before I saw it, and then I saw her perform it. And um, it's an absolutely stunning work. Um, and it's so alive. And I was wondering if, um, well, this is a praise and a question, if it's OK. Um, I started thinking tonight, I kept getting lost and trying to pay attention to the questions because I was thinking about the Pasolini film, The Gospel According to Matthew, um, which is, it reminds me very much of the Testament of Mary in this one particular way in that it's so soulfully alive to the now and the person who did the music for that film um, included all these um, blues ballads and like slave songs. And so it has these textures to it where it, it opens with a generosity where you are allowed to care about what happens to Matthew. Um, and I, I was just wondering if there's a resonance for you between the two or... Certainly with Pasolini there is, although I, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I admire Pasolini enormously and also that he was a poet, um, you, you know, as well, so that he was working with images, which is what I what really want to talk about the flamethrowers, where I mean, the novel is about all these things. Yes, it is, of course. It's about um, the, the art world. Um, you, know, you know, it's about a certain moment um, in Italy and, and in America. And it's about a certain person. But it's also sentence-led. 
And um, so it's, I love the idea. God, I love the idea of, what, what did you say? Going into a room in the morning before you've heard, is it before anyone? No one's allowed to speak to you. I mean, you hey, you've got a kid. Any. I mean, what, 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 what do you do with the kid? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a, my husband. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, great. I wish I had a husband. Um, but, um, I mean, in other words, that, that, that you go in in the morning in full silence. No one has spoken to you yet. I mean, I love the idea of being in your mental pajamas all day, as it were, and, uh, and that, that idea that, you, that you're working with the sentence, and the sentence has to have a sonorous thing in it, a cadence in it, a way of stopping and starting, and it has to be followed by another one, which will do something slightly different. And, and there's a, so it is a form of action painting, almost. That it, that it is, I mean, that it, in other words, if you watch the way Pollock was dripping or, you know, w one of those big, brave, heroic American painters, you know, from Helen Frankenthal or somebody like that, that sometimes when you're working, you have to be conscious of, oh, come on, get the next sentence with, with a rhythm in it. You're working with rhythm. You're not working with an idea. You're not working with character. And that's what I felt about the flamethrowers all the time, that I could go back to a sentence and say, oh my God, look at that. But then if I didn't do that, the sentence was having an effect on me. It was hitting my nervous system. And um, so that underneath the content of the book or the subject of the book, there was something else going on which was to do with rhythm. I mean, let's say not sound, but that funny business of sentences having within them their own soul as well as a body. And that, that takes extraordinary amount of energy. I mean, I mean, energy to make. Because otherwise, you know, if you don't do it, you're just giving the reader information. Yeah. Don't you feel that you do that too? I mean, I, I well, read I, it. I, I, no, I, I, I don't know. I, I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to. I mean, I read that so much in your work. I've been reading the short stories of Colm Toybean, um, and if, if anyone here hasn't read them. No one has read them, by the they, way. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't want to alienate any short story writers, because uh, I, there are many masterful craftsmen of that form working today. Um, but it isn't really my form. It's obviously definitely not my form as a writer. I don't write them. But I don't read a ton of short stories um, because I, I don't relate to this idea that you have to get to know the people very quickly and inhabit their world and then that something is going to happen and you know the sign and then you're moving toward the close and it's quick. Um, but Colin's short stories are formally so different than any other short stories I've ever read. They have a litheness. They sneak in and perpetrate the land of the short story, but they never conform to any of its conventional dictates. And they also operate, for me, very much uh, on the level of sound and this kind of quiet humming along. And they're just hyper-controlled in that way. And that's why I asked, don't you feel that I mean, I was just trying to personalize what the internal experience of the creation uh, is for what you were describing. And for me, it's that um, if I'm doing things right, or at least in my own whatever manner of right is within my objective limitations, the work is almost memorized. And so then when I get it back from Scribner, like if it's in production and somebody has moved one comma, you know, they're on my hit list <laughs> because uh, 
it's, then it's wrong to me, and I can be very fussy about that. I mean, that's maybe the bad side of it, but I'm assuming it might be the same for you, that when it's done the first time, then it's etched, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the idea of drafting a book would for me be anatomy. I mean, it doesn't mean you don't revise and revise, but you write down as though you might never get another chance, like, yeah. like you're, you yeah. sort of have a knife in your hand and, and, and you've got a material to stab, you know, you know. And I work in longhand, which is even more fun, because you can literally stab the paper with a bit of pen. <laughs> yeah. what, what strikes me so much from what you've both said is that you've given uh, real insight into the process of writing, but what I hear also is real, uh, just about the best two descriptions I've ever heard of the process of reading and what a sensitive reader finds in a book. Um, and so I encourage you all to go to the videotape and listen to that again and think about it in terms of your own reading um, because it's a, a really a revelatory, I think, in that sense. I can take, I guess, about three questions. And um, as I said earlier in the session today, could you do me a huge favor? And when you ask a question, could you just really only make it a question? Um, because we don't have much time. And you can talk with the writers at the signing table. Um, so use that opportunity to do that. And it's really hard to see. So stand up when you raise your hand. Here's a person here. Go ahead. Does your process of writing and your process of research overlap? And when do you feel you've done enough Did everyone hear that? Does the process of writing and the process of research overlap? Uh, well, Kathy Mann, Thomas Mann's wife, was one of the wisest people who ever lived. And she, Thomas Mann had no education of any sort. And, um, but he was, he, but he, of course, he wrote these weighty essays and these very weighty novels. And she, she was quite educated herself. And she always said to people, don't ask Tommy anything, because he never knows anything than what's in the book. In other words, that he has done enough research about music to write Dr. Faustus, but don't think he knows about music. He doesn't. <laughs> and I think the thing to remember about a novelist is that we are chancers. You know, that, that in other words, it, that, that um, you don't have a PhD, do you? <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, in other words, um, I mean, I teach in Columbia in the English department, and they're always looking at me because I don't have a PhD, and they think maybe I should. And, but if I did have one, then I'd know what I was talking about. Whereas I find my time, I'm, I'm always, you know, if I'm teaching on a Tuesday, on a Monday night, I am, I am with the students reading the thing too. And, and I never know enough because I, and it's the same with research where, God, you know, I, for this, even for this book, I, th I think I read John's Gospel, you know, but I should have done more because there's so much commentary on John's Gospel. And then someone reviewed the book saying he missed so-and-so's commentary on John's Gospel, which really makes Mary, I said, well, I missed it. I didn't even know about it, but I hadn't even, <laughs> oh my God. And that week, I think I was doing something else entirely. So that, you know, the whole idea of research is that you need a fact and, and you go in search of it and you need an image more than you need a fact. And the image often comes of its own accord. So you've got to be very, very careful as you're, if you need to research a book, that you're, that you're actually trying to find tone, image, texture, by, by actually working, rather than thinking, oh my god, I have another two years research to do, 
and then I'll write. I, I think that is really fatal, and, and, I, wouldn't, and, and I wouldn't try it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I wouldn't have the time anyway. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree completely. Um, maybe I'm slightly chagrined to say that uh, that last <clears throat> unrecommended method is what I did with my first novel when I really had no idea how to write a novel, um, how to make something out of material about which I cared a great deal. That was Telex from Cuba. And I spent years reading everything I could find. And um, in, in a way, it's understandable because it was about a time and a place uh, that I had no relationship to personally. And so I had to totally immerse myself in it. Um, intellectually, I'd always had an interest in Latin America. I'd studied it in college. And um, I, you know, I'm interested in the Enlightenment and the way it affected the Caribbean. And I'm interested in the Haitian Revolution. All these things you have to understand in order to depict Cuba, uh, even by mid-century. That said, you know, it took me a long time to decaffect from the material in order to write a novel, because a novel, you don't need all that stuff, as um, Colm just you know, very articulately pointed out. You only need those few key things that are going to elucidate what happens next in the story and tell you something about a character in a situation. And um, my writing has changed, or my methods, because with flamethrowers, I only wrote about things um, that I knew about in a natural way just from being alive and being in the world. And that was part of the fun of the book was just to put things in play and in motion uh, that I knew I could kind of write about with a reasonable amount of authority. And you know, it's dangerous to make manifestos or blank statements. But uh, I don't think I'm interested in writing a book that would require a lot of research, unless it was something that I just wanted to know more about anyway, uh, whether or not I was going to write about it. Mm -hmm. I, I want to use my way of being in the world and activate that. And uh, yes, back there. Um, this is a question about Henry James's voice and how you got it. Um, you know, I don't think I did get his voice. He seemed, um, he, he was much funnier. And um, <laughs> he often um, took him ages to come to the point. There's a wonderful moment where Virginia Woolf and her sister used to fall around laughing at everybody, really. I mean, they thought everyone was funny, the two of them. But he particularly was there one evening at their father's table. And, and of course, he was ruminating so much as he spoke that his chair fell over. And he continued speaking. And they tried to lift him <laughs> and the chair up. But, they, but it was like a German sentence. The verb still hadn't arisen. <laughs> and then there were some subclauses to come. And Virginia and Vanessa were absolutely delighted. They were running into the other room, howling with laughter at the fact that you know, that there was a, a way. And I had to be very, very careful, because if you'd attempted to do this, you could parody it. And also, I made him, I think, sadder than he was, because what I was trying to do was find an internal version of him, rather than the one who spoke, or the one who had friendships, or the one who seemed to amuse people who 
you know, who knew him. It was a solitary figure I was interested in. And that solitary figure seemed to me to be much more somber in his tone. But I had to be very, very careful that at no moment in the book, The Master, was there any sign of pastiche, that I had just had found a style which I was easy with, and which I felt the reader could read freely without feeling that it was, you know, particularly based on, say, his later style. You know, you know they, 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 they talk about James I, James II, and then the, the great pretender, you know, in, in that his tone became so um, um, baroque, especially in the last three novels. But so that it was, it was, it was really a question of trying to... Uh, and what happens, really, is that you have an idea or an image and it moves of its own accord into rhythm. And then you can work once the rhythm is there. And really, once I had the rhythm, I could then work. But I didn't really think it was his voice, because it was a rhythm that I had made of my own accord, that it had come to me, rather than coming from daily study of his particular style, which I think is a much richer style, actually, than the style of my book. So one more quick question in the back there. Oh, um, I mean, I have no identity much, you know, to speak <laughs> of. And um, I, I mean, especially when some of the books came I remember when the second novel came out, Gary Hines, who's, who's an old friend of mine, theater director, said to me, who wrote that book? And I said, Gary, no, you didn't. Because she knew me you know, as this sort of you know, drunken fellow wandering down to Galway, having a wonderful weekend, and being about the place, and being up until 9 in the morning. And this sad book came out. He said, but who wrote it? I said, but I'm like that sometimes. <laughs> and then I realized that that, that idea of almost not existing at all, of almost not having a fully formed identity is very helpful so that each time you come, and I suppose what you're trying to do then is trying to establish, well, for some brief time, I had an identity, and I'd like to communicate, I'd like to make that clear to someone or other who might read the book, that there was a thing, a mark I wanted to make that time, and here it is. But once I come to it again, I, I've faded away, I've dissolved again, and, and I, I've become somebody else entirely. It's sort of sad. I mean, it'd be better if, if it was. I, I mean, I went to a psychiatrist, and, and he said, well, wh why are you here? I said, well, I would like to have an integrated personality. <laughs> and, and he said, well, would, you know, would you like to be the sad person or the fellow that's up until 9 in the morning drinking in Galway? And I said, God, I don't know. And he said, well, I think you should maybe go away then. There's going to be a signing table uh, right out in the hallway. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.